0: Welcome everyone to the City Club. I'm Jenny Hamill, education reporter and producer for Idea Stream. It's February 23 and you are with a virtual City Club Forum. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic have once again brought the issues facing working women into the public consciousness. Unfair pay, limited access to childcare, rampant discrimination and job loss. These are all making headlines. Sadly, these are not new stories as we all know. Women have been fighting for their rights in the workplace and fighting these battles for decades. A new documentary is now highlighting a key moment at the intersection of the women's movement and the labor movement. 9 to 5, the story of movement, chronicles the previously untold story of the founding of 9 to 5. This is an organization started by a group of secretaries in Boston back in 1972 that also inspired the 1980 film starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton, and that ever so great hit song, 9 to 5. It is the latest film from Academy Award winning documentary filmmakers Julia Riker and Steve Bognar. As America grapples with deep economic racial and gender inequality, the stories and strategies of these women will Resonate today and continue to inform the women and the individuals on the front lines today. Today, we're going to talk with Ms. Reichert and three female labor leaders about how women change the labor movement, and we'll examine the work that is still left to be done today, and as we know, there's still a lot. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Either text them to 330-541-5794, that's 330 541 You can also tweet them at the City Club, we'll try to work them in. Joining us today, Julie Riker, the Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker behind 9 to 5, the story of a movement. She is also professor emeritus at Wright State University, having spent 28 years as professor of production. She also served as a mentor to many film alumni around the country. And then we have Mary Jung, the daughter of flower farmers. She arrived in Cleveland from California when she was seven. Ms. Jung became a secretary and joined Cleveland women working as a member when she was 20 years old and became an organizer. She continued her activism when she moved back to California and eventually became chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. So, welcome to you. Thank you. We'll- We also have Karen Nussbaum. She has been an organizer for more than 50 years and was the founding director of 9to5 and its sister union, District 925 of the SEIU, moving their national headquarters right here to Cleveland back in 1978. She founded and led Working America, the community organizing arm of the AFL-CIO, for 15 years and is now on its board. Welcome. Hi. Hi. And finally, Yanella Sims, the Ohio State Director and Vice President of SEIU Local One. Her territory covers Cleveland, Akron, Columbus, Toledo, and Cincinnati. So welcome to all of you.
1: Hey, thanks for having us.
0: And so, Julia, I'd like to start with you. I mean, what you you've done amazing documentaries in the past. What was the impetus? What what drew you to this moment in time, and then ultimately to this region? Um, that was that something that you wanted to document and make a film about? Well, you know, I live in Ohio, first of all, so uh, I love making films that have some bit of the
2: story in Ohio. And if you look at most of our films, they are anchored here. Uh, you know nine to five um we all i'd heard we all heard the, the wonderful song you know working nine to five what a way to make a living you know the dolly parton it's kind of like an anthem of barely getting movement. by yeah <laughs> barely getting by and it's still an anthem of the labor movement and so many of us have seen the film you know with uh, lily tomlin and dolly and jane fonda but not so we were aware of that but we were also aware that there was this secretary's movement uh, but most people didn't know about it even though it was very impactful so we decided to try to tell this story and it's wow it was a huge job because there's nothing written about it almost no book no big articles uh you know we had to find people to be in the film we had to find archival footage so that was a years-long process. And I wanted to bring up, um, as you mentioned, nine to five came out at a really interesting time. There was women were flooding into the workplace. The largest percentage of workers were women at that point, which was not really recognized, but it was true when you look back at it. And I think women are probably still the largest part of the, the low-wage workforce for sure. So we have. The labor movement, which is supposed to speak for working people, but it's almost all led by men, and there are very few clerical workers in it, clerical, you know, white collar workers. Then you have the women's movement, which is speaking to women, but is pretty militant and in the streets and has its own language. Uh, and nine to five folks, starting with Karen um, and others brought those two together in a really interesting way and sort of, you know, which I we have a clip that sort of illustrates this. Uh, it sort of brings together two, you know, two different forms of how you organize people, how you work with people.
0: And like Julia, you know, my job for me. why don't we go ahead and and, and take a, a look at a, a pretty powerful clip from from your documentary, Nine to Five. Thank you.
3: We built an organization that we wanted to be in. We were organizing a workforce that was 90% female, and so our staff and our leaders were 90% female. Half of us were single mothers, so we had our babies and we were
4: still organizers. The women who are part of 9to5, they built their own kind of feminism. It was a workplace feminism, and it was powerful. Susie, what beautiful flowers? Secret admirer. <laughs> My boss, your boss
3: for National Secretaries Week. What did your boss get you? Well, Mr. Gladstone's very busy. Excuse me, are you Myrna Canby? Uh huh. These are for you. For me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we feel roses one day in April are no substitute for our rights 365 days a year.
5: Women, including women working considered themselves mainstream women, didn't believe that they were feminists, but yet if you asked them what they believed in, they believed in all the same things feminists believed in. And so we couldn't have a demonstration because a demonstration is considered too radical for our members, so we would have actions. You know, what we're doing is pretty serious, but seriousness isn't always what gets the message across.
6: Nine to five had a contest to find out who was the worst boss, bad boss, unbelievable boss. Bruce, you won the downright unbelievable boss. You're his secretary, Kathy? Yeah. You had to go to a beef and beer restaurant, uh huh. and if you found a girl there that you found, thought he would be interested in, you'd I, beep...
4: I would have to beep him, yeah.
6: Well, who's got the first question?
4: <laughs>
6: the best one was the 14-carat boss,
4: right, and right. that was fabulous. And here with us is Debbie Neal. I remember her. Tell us about the winner, the notorious winner, we might say, Debbie. Yes, the winner of the 14-carat award was a senior partner in the firm of Kelly, McCann, and Livingston. He requested his secretary to, every single day, buy carrots, peel them, put them in the refrigerator.
6: Wilma, that's fantastic. You see that
0: boss's nose twitching?
6: That's the best thing that can happen to you, isn't it? Oh, sure. You can publicly embarrass bosses who who provoke or who demand demeaning tasks on the part of uh, their secretary. That's
3: right, because the public uh, knows that it's ridiculous the boss who made his secretary sew up his pants while he had them on like in the crotch
1: how many times you saw
6: my slacks? Once. <laughs> once that's not bad once in five years
3: well
0: does this
6: embarrass you being on tv like oh, this i love it well today that would be considered sexual harassment uh yes yeah <laughs> i want to know who uh it is.
4: wasn't me don't no. look at me
6: <laughs> this image of him claiming his property and having his props on either side of him makes her have to play the role that he wants her to play subservient
0: yeah Julia, I the the imagery and and the footage that you got was so compelling, and to actually have right there, you know, I mean, such a dramatic effect. But I mean, a real demonstration of of, of this man kind of having this proprietary stance with an employee. Uh, you know, for all of us women in the workplace, it it even now in in what 2021, it it's, it kind of sends shivers. Does. <laughs> My spine. so so let's talk real quickly about process I mean it is not easy to to bring a time period decades old um, to life so what was that process of, as a filmmaker like to get all that archival footage
2: well it takes years uh, we were um, that particular shot that you just talked about Jenny when I saw that shot which was years into the making of the film, I was personally brought back to what it was like to be a young woman there. Mm -hmm. You notice her face. On the one hand, she's supposed to smile It's my boss. On the other hand, this is creepy. But you know, we did not have a word sexual harassment until 1978, we didn't have that word. Okay, so how do we find the footage? It was a big national search that took years. I will say in Cleveland, we were very lucky because when all the TV stations were throwing out all their videos, when they were all their old films, all their old videos, and they were going to digital, one employee pulled around to the back of one of the TV stations in Cleveland with Mm. a pickup truck and loaded everything out of the dumpster and gave it to Case Western Reserve. Interesting. And that's why we have so much footage from Cleveland. Like we have that footage that includes Mary Jung as a young woman passing out balloon, all that stuff. We don't have that kind of footage in Seattle, Atlanta, other cities, but we have it in Cleveland. And Mary, we kept seeing her in the footage. This was another challenge. And in all the newspaper articles, in the Plain Dealer, and the Cleveland Press, we were like, who is this person? Everyone knew her name in Cleveland, but nobody knew what happened to her. So we eventually uh, tracked her down in San Francisco and she was head of the Democratic Party of San Francisco, which, you know, we were not surprised. And she said she had the the skills she'd learned in nine to five. Right, Mary? Uh, Really helped her be effective as a leader in that political movement, the Democratic Party.
0: I want to get to Mary in one second, but Karen, you know, I I feel like in some ways, your story was so central um, to, to to the strength and vigor of this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it to kind of see this chapter um redepicted and in full color? And um, at the time, did you see yourself as a feminist? I mean, what did it feel like to be entering into this um, new space of fighting for women's rights, um, you know, from a, a time when kind of this mad esque era seemed to be pervasive. Well,
3: I was a political radical. I had grown, i have been part of the anti-war movement and the women's movement, and I got a job to support my organizing. Uh, and in those days, the job that you could get as a woman was as a clerical worker. And so I, um, I'm working as a clerical worker to pay my bills. And then I came to realize that I could be organizing on the job as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I also understood how important it was to build an organization, as it says in the clip, that, that I would want to be in and that other people would want to be in. And that meant that you had to uh, get rid of all of the assumptions, uh, get rid of all of the secret passwords or, you know. Uh, litmus tests about whether you could be part of this organization or not, and, and so we built a uh, an organization that would feel welcoming to working women who didn't identify with the women's movement, uh, and that would build space in the labor movement for us as women. Uh, so it was uh, a lot of fun, and um, but I have to say uh, it. it it was a chapter that, that um, while the two organizations still exist and do wonderful work, didn't really achieve the very ambitious goals that we had originally. And then when and Steve made the film, um, it was wonderful to see how much we got right, because I don't know about you, but for me, my mistakes are often more vivid than the things that went right. wrong. Uh, and it was fun to revisit it and see just how much fun and, uh, and how exhilarating it was.
0: Did you have any sort of lament in watching it? Because as you said, you know, there are chapters of the organizations that exist now, but I think kind of these aspirational big goals that you had maybe weren't achieved. Um, was there a lament in kind of seeing it all again or just pride that you had done what you'd done?
3: No, oh, I mean I'm a I'm a lifetime organizer, uh, and so it's not about regret or lament or you know, sure. you know, patting ourselves on the back for a job well done. It's really okay. What do we do to advance our work now? Yeah. Uh, and so that's always what I brought to it. Although I have to say the '80s were. A decade that I hardly remember. It wasn't a really very good time. Yeah, it was. It was the consolidation of a right wing in this country uh, and the the real unleashing of a uh, corporate attack on organized working people and unions. And I think
0: that's what I meant by lament because it was made apparent to me in watching the documentary um, what strong forces you were up against. Mm-hmm. And and the 80s yeah. are kind of largely recognized as a union-busting era. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of yeah, yeah. Right. what I meant. Right, right. Yes, absolutely.
3: We had we thought we, and we did, we had this amazing momentum, the Jane Fonda movie hit <laughs> in 1980. We make our national union nationwide, we're going like gangbusters. And we didn't really know what was going to slap us right upside the face with uh, this big corporate attack. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ascendance of uh, much more right-wing politics in our country.
0: Sure. So, Mary, um, We've already seen clips in which, you, know, you are depicted as a very young woman, um, as an, an Asian woman. Uh, are you all, can you hear me? Okay. As an Asian woman, you know, I identified with you and uh, was wondering how it felt to be kind of a person of color, a woman of color, to be so young and to be... Just so fierce um, in your advocacy and fighting for um, women's rights in the victim.
5: So, um, before I answer that, first, I just want to thank someone like Karen Nussbaum for for having the vision. She was only four years older than I was. At at that time, it just seemed like a huge gulf. But, you know, when you're 20 years old, a 24 year old who's leading a movement is just an awe inspiring person. And, you know, looking back at the film and, you know, seeing the disappointment of losing the organizing job, and yes, um, we were very ambitious. But the fact is, is that we would not be where we are today if it was not for the work that we did back in the 70s. So thank God for the leaders like Karen Nussbaum who just um, took it, had the vision, and just ran forward with it. But I'm getting back to your question. So, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I started off in California, which was pretty diverse. You go to Cleveland, Ohio, and of a graduating class that started with 800 students, there were three Asians, okay? Um, And um, I didn't fit into any of the boxes. You were either supposed to be white, black, or Puerto Rican. And I knew I was in any of those things. And so, I just never really thought about it Um, had I realized what was going on. Um, you know, with um, my treatment, I might have reacted differently to what was going on. But um, as it is, is, is that you know, as a young Asian woman, and just just being a young woman, seeing the things that were going that were going on in in the workplace was something that just had to be addressed. And um, you know, it's interesting that you know, watching the uh, the B-roll you know of this clip you know, it talks about the George Gunn Foundation at the very beginning of George Gunn Forum. Um, the woman who got me involved in Cleveland Women Working was from the George Gunn organization. And she was the person who, when I had my first clerical job, she was the one who would post the flyers in the women's room. and uh, That's how I found out about Cleveland Women Working.
0: I'd like to play another clip. Um, you know, it, it, the tactics... It, in many respects, as you know, I'm going to ask Anella about soon, um, they are still employed and deployed now. Um, but you got major work done, uh, major achievements. Uh, the clip that we're about to play highlights the, the work that was done when it comes to the National City Bank and its treatment of women. So let's go ahead and play that.
1: I, I would like to know why last associate producer before me made fifty, $50, $50 dollars
6: oh, because he was a man fact employed women are paid 59 cents for every dollar employed men are paid
5: we had heard of women in the banking industry being passed up for promotions and men with the same skills being paid 50% more
6: That's when we really began learning more about the laws that prohibit discrimination. We weren't really aware of those laws and we did our research. We learned everything about the law (laughs) and we used the law to our advantage.
5: The meeting here today is really just step number one. Yes, it'll be the first meeting with many.
6: We have investigations going on at the four largest banks. In Cleveland right now, the Department of Labor, there's a huge investigation going on of National City Bank. Businesses that got federal money had to comply with anti-discrimination laws. You could have their money taken away. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission just strengthens what we've been saying for the last two years, that banks are shortchanging women. After our campaign, the women who worked in banks were much better off than they had been previously. Many more women got promoted. They hired many more people of color.
4: At one of the banks, they won an average of a 12% raise within the first year. At John Hancock Insurance, they won an average 10% raise. And not only that, they got the company to give money to a local child care center so that they would have child care for their kids.
6: Were they given full justice? Probably not.
5: National City Bank was just a blip. But what it showed was that this was important and that we could win. And it was a message to everybody that we're here, we're in it for the long haul, and you're going to be hearing from us.
0: such power in that clip, Mary, does it, h- h- how does it feel to watch that and to see kind of a young you um, fighting
5: that fight? It's, um, um, you, know, you know, it's, 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 it's almost, almost like, out of like an out-of-body out experience. experience. Yeah, and I remember, remember when Julia Reichert called about me about I five, six years ago, with was it Julia? Julia? And, and said, said the this is a voice of your past, past, past. And she explained she what she was doing. And you know, it, I never really talked about you know what I did back in the seventies. You know, partially because once at one point when I left the women's when I left the women's organizations, I had moved out of state, and it was difficult to explain to a future employer why they would hire this rabble rousing young woman who looks like she goes around suing banks, right? And um, I had to change my story to make sure that. Um, I, could um, I could get hired and so I spent years not talking about it Then all of a sudden to be able to talk about it was being like let free and then seeing this movie that I watched it with my son and he's like I just had no idea. I mean like of course he always thinks his mom is awesome, right? You know aw- you know, aw- you know awesomes, you know love their mothers, right? <laughs> but it was um, it was an interesting experience and it was the first time I had seen the film I never saw any of the clips or anything and I knew that they were out there, but it chose not to. I wanted to be a fresh experience.
0: I don't know if you can um, perhaps turn down your speakers to see if it might rectify. But um, you're coming in kind of distorted. So um, sorry about that. So so when we get back to you, we'll see if that works. But I, I want to turn to Yanella. Um, you know, you you are carrying the torch now. Um, did, mm-hmm. When you watch the documentary. Um, What sat with you? Uh, Had you ever had kind of a visualization of of the women that fought before um, or laid the foundation to the good fight that you're fighting now?
1: there are so many things I, you know i mean th- there was um one part where they were talking about organizing specifically you know and i thought this is exactly what we do now you know mm-hmm. organizing is about having individual conversations giving people the space and the room and the opportunity to speak their own truth and to talk about what they want to change for themselves as a collective group. So it it was it would the connection was just so real and it's like, you know, it's 2021 and we are doing the same things that these women were doing back in the in the 70s. You know, you start with one individual conversation and you don't talk to them um you don't talk to your audience you listen to your audience and and each person each individual has a story and a lot of times the stories are the same you know people always want to be treated with respect and dignity people always want to be able to support themselves and their families and you know even back then it's it's still the same you know we're, we're still fighting for the same things for working people particularly uh women and people of color you know the the fight is always the same the fight is always big business against the the working class person so um it, you know watching the documentary was really um it was like an underscore to 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 reinforce the work that myself and my team and our organization, that it's just the work that we do every day, it it, it reignited um, the idea that we still need to keep doing the the same things that have been done in the past for the same goal.
0: You know, I'd like to ask you: um, the pandemic has really um, put hard women, um, and and women are losing jobs, whether they are being furloughed. Or just laid off, or they need to care for their kids because they're learning remotely. Um, so, in some respects, the pandemic has just really shined a light on the biggest cracks in society. Even today, um, how has it hit your membership? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what do you what do you say when when something like a modern phenomenon like a pandemic um, really hits one sector of our population? Um, you know, in, in half, it's really. Um, It's really something.
1: Well, the thing is, the pandemic kind of shed light on what was already happening. Mm -hmm. This is not new. You know, people of color and women have always had to struggle harder. Um, They've always had to do more with less. And the pandemic just like you cannot deny it now you can't say that everyone in our society is equal you can't say that you know we've already fought that battle and we're past that stage you you can't say that because it's not real and there's no fact to it at all and the pandemic just rubber stamped it and said see you're not done here the work is not done and everything is not okay um you know as far as the specific impact that it's had on our membership Mm -hmm. you know it really depends on where you are in ohio we've we've been hit but it hasn't been as bad as it's been in other places and you know we're still there's still a struggle in the workplace, whether it be for pay or in this case PPE, um, you know, paid time off if you have to be out because you've been um, because you've tested positive for COVID 19. Um, there's so many inequalities that we're still fighting to address that you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The struggles may be different in some section in some sections, but the the bottom line is that we are still at a disadvantage when it comes to um, income inequality for women and for people of color. And that is the reason why we need unions. The union is like a great unifier, a collective bargaining agreement says that anybody that works in this particular job at this particular place makes X amount of dollars period. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, this. Boss likes you more because you're prettier, or because you're their, you know, nephew that just got out of college. The collective bargaining agreement says mm-hmm. this is what you are entitled to, and anything that is outside of that is outside of that. Um, And that's that's the thing that people don't understand. They don't see the union as being, um, they don't see unions as being that equalizer. They see unions as being, you know, bodies of people that wanna make trouble, but that's not the case.
0: Julie, I wanna ask you, you have have a thought.
2: I, I just wonder, you know, another thing with unions is my understanding is that in a unionized factory or workplace, there would be, A safety committee, there would be a health committee. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's the voice of the workers, elected voice by people on that floor. It's not just about pay, although, of course, that's important. But I would think if you're in a a unionized workplace, white collar, blue collar, you're going to be better off during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That that is absolutely the case. I mean, many studies have shown that people who are currently working under collective bargaining agreements are much safer. They're they're much better off with just even getting the, the basics. I mean, I represent janitorial workers Mm -hmm. um and and you know janitors are the people that folks see when they're on their way home to their families because most of our members start working at night so it's like out of sight out of mind There oftentimes Mm -hmm. there's no concern about the safety or well-being of the people that you don't see and you don't have relationships with so um sandra ellington who is our executive board member and she is a um She works at the airport. You know, she stated a few weeks ago when we were on the Sound of Ideas that she has a voice when something is not right. She goes to management. She goes to her supervisors and says, like, these gloves don't hold up while we're, you know, for an eight hour shift. These masks are flimsy Mm -hmm. we need better ones we need more we need new ones so that again it's it's a it's the equalizer it's the being a member of a union gives you a voice to speak on any issue whether it be pay or you know safety or health care or not being able to get off work on time because you have to catch a bus. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of our members Have to catch a bus, and sometimes adjustments need to be made for their schedules in order for them to be able to do that. And when you don't have that collective body, it's often much more difficult to have those types of conversations. Mm -hmm. I'm
0: going to ask another question, but I just want to remind our audience that uh, we are now past the halfway mark, so we would love to turn to questions if you have any for our speakers, our panelists. You want to ask these women a question or give us a thought, You can text us 330-541-5794, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we will try to work them in. So Julie, I have a question, you know, as as it comes, once you finish a documentary, you you connect with the right organizations, you have screenings, and has there been any interesting response um, from individuals or groups about what they have learned about this moment? or how it sits with them that have been kind of um, new or interesting to you? That's a great question.
2: What There's been a lot of response, like more than I expected, probably more than Karen expected, who's worked with me closely. Yeah. The, the women in the film, many of them have worked really side by side to get the word out uh, and they've done a great job. Um, I would say what's really been exciting to me is how many leaders like younger women, whether they're activists in the women's movement or in the labor movement or or teachers in a classroom of mm-hmm. whether it be history, women's history, labor history, who have said, oh my God, we have to get this film in our classroom or in our next meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are some of the older, like the AFL-CIO has been very involved, mm-hmm. SEIU has been very involved, but, there's all these people all over the country. A lot, and the emails are coming from women, and a lot of them I can tell are new to all this. Are younger. Uh, I think people are also. I'm getting the feeling picking up on the, the humor aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you can shame the boss, you can make fun, you can reach the newspapers. You know, Cleveland. You saw all those newspaper articles from the Plain Dealer and the Cleveland Press. They hit the newspapers all the time because it was funny. It wasn't just like, not just like, but a picket line outside the workplace. It was, you know, they were smart, they were clever. Like Mary was very smart and clever, all the women. So I think that is being picked up on and I hope that continues. It's a good strategy.
0: Well, Karen, I mean, I'd love to hear since you kind of have been so intimately um, connected with this project and, and, and I'm sure having lots of conversations yourself. Um, what have you been struck by as far as the reactions um, currently? And then I want to pivot to how you feel this whole nine to five experience does kind of manifest today. Are you seeing it in, in, in how women talk about their experience in the workplace? So first, let's talk about the reaction to the film.
3: (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, uh, Julia and Steve started making this film almost 10 years ago at a very different time. And we wondered, you know, we weren't quite sure what was the lesson for it. And even up until the last interviews, all of that happened like just before uh, the you know, millions of women out on the when Trump was elected. And it was a really quiet, down, discouraging period. And now uh, it, the film seems so wildly relevant to what's right. going on today. And so it's very exciting. You look back and you see that the 70s are really very much like the period that we're in today. It was a period of rupture, of mass disruption everywhere in politics and uh, the economy, but uh, also with the uh, wild development of social movements. And that's just like today. And we were talking earlier, Jenny, about how uh, we got so hit by what happened in the 80s. So it's important for us to learn the lessons of the 70s so that the, this coming decade is one of real transformational change and not the backlash that we've been living with
2: since the '80s. I want to add, actually, something to that. Um, the whole concept of union busting, of union avoidance. This is, first of all, I first heard that term in when we were making nine to five. Really? You know, yeah, that's the first time I heard it. Wow. Um, and as far as an industry in America, not just like some people didn't like unions, but an industry of lawyers and consultants who are paid millions of dollars to break unions. And you see that in our film, American Factory, if you've ever seen that, that's where I really saw it up close. And it's mentioned those two films talk to each other. And I got to bring this up because this is still a huge part of American life, American culture that most people have no clue about. Right now, we may be noticing the Amazon workers in Alabama There's like 6,000 of them who are considering whether to organize. It's all over the newspapers, right? Yeah. And there's sort of a mention there are anti-union signs in the factory. Well, I can tell you there's a lot more going on than that. Right. You know, there are mandatory meetings. There are threats. There may even be people being fired, as they were in American Factory, for wearing a union T-shirt or for talking about union. Um, the union avoidance industry is a huge factor in American life. That is still, somebody should make a film about that. Maybe you. you, (laughs) No, it's hard to get in there. They don't want to talk. You know, it was, we got pushed away all the time, like sometimes uh, physically Mm. from ever covering the union avoidance folks. They Mm. would not talk to us. We did everything we could, but there should be a film made about it.
1: Julia, I'd like to add to that as well. The history of the country is that we have to have two separate groups of people. So Hmm. if I give you some of what I have, that means that I am missing out. It's Hmm. not, let's figure out how we can you know, support the people that, that really need our support the most and encourage them and lift them up so that they can become self-sufficient. It's it's one or the other. It's if mm-hmm. I give you something, then I'm missing out. Although I have more than enough to to give. And it's not even a give. It's not a handout. It's about creating a even playing field so that people can equally you know can start to do better for themselves as opposed to a handout and i think that's that's how as a society that's how we look at creating spaces for individuals and families to do better we look at it as a handout as opposed to creating real transformation in our society because mm-hmm. if If I create an opportunity for you to do as well as I am doing right now, that means that I'm not gonna be on top and I'm not gonna have the power. And that's what it all boils down to. That's why you have these multimillion dollar, um, attorneys that fight unions and like literally their work is to union bust. That's what they do because the corporations and the employers would prefer to spend money on that than to create a space for mm-hmm. others to do better well, and you know we maria, sorry julie i'm going to ask maria okay
0: because uh, we've got some audience questions and 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 I think this one's applicable to her. So, um, you know, Julia talked about Mary, you're savvy and kind of a way that comedy was introduced and you kept it light. And then there's almost like a marketing ability that goes with all of that. It's just kind of reading the public and what might resonate, what might work, what's too much versus, you know, seeming too aggressive or, you know, it did seem to be effective. One audience member asked, how did the organizers solve The East Side versus West Side schism here in Cleveland, because that's a thing. Um, So, what were some of the surprising things that you found did bring kind of the public regionally together um, to to say, "Hey, I support these. um, I support these women. I support this movement." Um, Was that something that was in your consciousness uh, uh, that people from different parts of the region might have different perspectives and kind of fall in that East-West divide?
5: so so that's an interesting question because um our membership was based on who um the workforce was and we would do the best job that we could to go to so we did most of our outreach in downtown cleveland and so we would go to um the different transit stops the major like terminal tower Uh, we would go to um where the major um buildings were like ninth and euclid and we would leaflet in front of those buildings or those street corners. And we would make an effort to try to um, get as diverse of a population as we could. But, you know, of course, you know, that's just hit or miss. Right. Um, But then when we were organizing, we always made it a point to make sure that we had as much diversity as possible and that people learned how to work together. And so if we had an older person in a room, we made sure we paired them with a younger person. If we had an African-American person in the room, we made sure we paired them with the a the room, sure we, um, paired them with, um, with um, you know, a, a different person, right? Just to make sure that everyone learned um, different skills and learned how to work together. And so in that way, we were able to cross the divide a little bit, but um, some of that was hit or miss. And you know, we were very fortunate that um, the workforce downtown was very diverse. And so we were able to get a good cross-section.
0: Another audience question for you. Um, This is an interesting one. Uh, I just would love to get your thoughts. Having seen the doc, I am curious if uh, the, the audience member says she um, but I think anyone can answer this. If she thinks the computer killed the nine to five movement or did the movement propel businesses to automate quicker? So that's I think that's an interesting place to go. Do you think there's any sort of correlation in that or is that just kind of a convergence of uh, two different um, forces at play? Karen. Yeah.
3: You know, how businesses automate is a decision. Uh, it, it's not a given. Uh, it's, a, it's a business strategy. Um, so I don't think that we were very concerned about how automation was coming into the workforce. In fact, we wrote like 10 different studies about it and, and knew that it was going to change work. But the decision by employers was to split the workforce, to use automation to create a more elite part of office work Mm. Uh, for some women, and those women ended up being the college-educated and more likely white women, uh, and then to make the jobs worse for the biggest uh, uh, group of clerical workers. Uh, mm. And that was part of an overall strategy that uh, about how to compete in more globalized and uh, automated business environment that was going on throughout the workforce. Um, so, I don't think it was technology that killed clerical organizing. In fact, there are still a lot, there, you know, clerical work is still one of the biggest uh, jobs, occupations for women today. Um, so, I don't think that that's the issue. I think it's uh, the decisions made by employers about how to use that that, that was the problem.
0: Yanela, you know, uh, I want to ask you a, a question from an audience, but, you know, you had brought up in a previous conversation that we all had together about the idea that Cleveland, in your perspective, um, is divided between the haves and have-nots, um, and I think um, I'd love to kind of hear you describe um that more so and kind of the work in which you do, is there a way for that to be reconciled? And, and it, whose shoulders does that fall on um, to try to create more equity in the workspace and more um, and more job opportunities for those who fall in the have not category?
1: So I think it falls on all of our shoulders Mm -hmm. from the citizens up to our elected officials, um, you know, with both the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, um, you know, publicly stating that, that racism is a public health crisis. I think we need to connect the wage disparity to that public crisis and really recognize that racism is often at the root of that crisis. Um, you know, I think that we, our elected officials have the power and the responsibility to to act on on that statement in a real way, not to just say, well, internally, you know, we're raising our wages or we're making sure that we have diverse um, you know, that we've implemented diversity and inclusion within our organization, but to really outwardly make sure that that happens in all of their practices, whether, you know, whether they're giving money to developers to like build a new property or whether they're um, giving, looking to um, give work to contractors. Like it needs to go outward. It needs to be across the board. It can't just be with inside of our organization, we're going to do all of these things. And that's why, you know, our city council, county council, our mayor, like all of our elected officials need to play a real and active role Mm -hmm. in keeping good jobs in our city. That's why I have the sign in behind me. Um, it's not enough just to say that this is a crisis and it's not enough to make changes internally. Uh, we have to be courageous and bold enough to say that if an organization or a company is coming to us for money to build a new building or you know whatever they're doing they need to be responsible enough not to displace people because that's been happening a lot across our city a lot of the spaces in downtown cleveland that used to be commercial real estate um properties are now being transformed into luxury apartments well the people that used to clean those buildings are not able to live in the new apartments that are being built. So if we want to be serious, if we're saying that we're serious about creating equity and creating a, a, a city that we can all live and grow in, we have to focus on the citizens that live here now um, and not put so much emphasis on bringing the best and brightest from somewhere else because in my opinion that's what we're doing we're trying to make this you know pretty cleveland that will attract you know engineers and doctors and all of these other people but we're not we're not taking care of the everyday janitor or food service worker that lives here right now yeah and we're not going to create an environment that is um, equitable if we don't do that.
0: You know, um, I, I we were recently reporting uh, at our station, I work at uh, the NPR station, Idea Stream, about uh, this innovation uh, district, this hub that's being developed with all the major universities and uh, university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic. And it sounds like an amazing thing. Um, and there were numbers thrown out about the types of numbers of jobs it will generate. And I really did think about, because I thought about kind of what you talk about, Yanella, um, with, you know, this kind of schism between... This very academic, you know, and and prosperous community, and then there's, you know, definitely the uh, the working class and and people who are struggling to get by. And I was wondering what kinds of jobs, you know, would be generated, and would they be inclusive, and would there maybe be training for people who otherwise wouldn't go into virus study or whatever it is to support that. Um, as part of that effort. So I do think, um, you know, there is kind of this attempt by Ohio and Cleveland to grow and to be a part of kind of like a, a new era um, and maybe a post pandemic era. But uh, I think maybe it's a, it's a time um, it's a place for opportunity too, to, to kind of refocus yeah. on how it uh, includes the entire population.
1: Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a new concept. Like it's been done in other In other cities, it's not like, what do we do? We don't know where to start. Like, look at other examples of cities who've made the commitment to create good jobs because, you know, you're bringing in the doctors and the engineers and the the folks that are coming into that innovation hub. But that space is still going to need janitors to clean it it's still gonna need food service workers to um, work in the cafeterias. It's still gonna need security officers to protect the property. So why not make sure that all of those people from the engineers to the security officers, to the janitors, why not make sure that all of those people are able to take care of themselves and their families? It doesn't have to be one group or the other. It can be both groups. Mm -hmm.
0: So I do have uh, one final audience question, um, and it's a good one. Uh, With the municipal elections in Cleveland coming up, what messages or message do the panelists have for candidates seeking working class votes? And how can these candidates best support the right and effort of all working people, especially women and people of color in Cleveland to join a union? So Karen, thoughts? I'm going to cede my time to Yanella, um, well, <laughs> but I would, like, you know, I, I, I think you know you have a space to. to okay. To, yeah. Um, uh,
3: I, I do think that the this is a moment when we've got to make the serious investments in working people. Uh, that we, if we don't do it now, we are in ser- in big, big trouble. Uh, Partly because it's such a, a dangerous time uh, in every single way, including uh, climate change, that it, it's we're just in peril. And if we don't make the kinds of investments right now uh, at the local level that make the kinds of changes that Yanelle is talking about, uh, then we won't. Uh, then we'll be really sorry. I also just want to take a moment, Jenny, to call out the, the number of people who do the hard work all the time to build these organizations like Anella, like Mary Young. But in Cleveland, it was also Helen Williams, Carol Kurtz, Janice McCord, Kathy Fitzsimmons, and Ione Biggs, who was this fabulous uh, leader for us for so many years who passed away a few years ago. And for our union, it was Ann Hill, Carol Sims, Jackie Harrison, uh, Peggy Torcheski. Uh, you know, it's it's individuals who work together who make the kind of change that Yanela is talking about.
0: That's great. And Yanela, of course, I want your perspective, uh, a message to candidates who are thinking about the region as a whole and the people as a whole and and inclusion as a part of lifting this region up.
1: I would say that those candidates need to be bold. Mm -hmm. They need to be courageous and they need to talk to the people who, who they represent. You can't sit in a vacuum And kind of make decisions when you're not having conversations with the people who those decisions are going to affect. But I think more importantly, it's time to change the way that we think about governance in our city. We need to be more creative and we need to make commitments like our elected officials need to make the commitment to the citizens of of Cleveland and to Cuyahoga County and to the state of Ohio. They need to make the commitment and they need to. Be courageous in that commitment to carry out those tasks that will eventually, you know, develop our cities into um, places that are more equitable, because if if your plan is to kind of do the same old, same old and cater to business and not listen to your constituents, then we're going to be in the same place. And I've seen a lot of catering to business in the city of Cleveland. And that definitely needs to change.
0: Great point. You
1: know,
2: Julia? I would just like to throw in uh, on a maybe a more national level. Um, yeah. You know, we have a new Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. And we have Joe Biden, who's probably the most pro-Labor president, at least in my memory, we've ever had. So there's really an opening here. Now, I know there's bad news, you know, from the right as well. But let's not forget, there are real openings. And one of the things we could all talk to our, particularly the national, like, representatives, is a thing called the PRO Act, Protect the Right to Organize, Mm. which would make some of those things I referred to in terms of union avoidance and union busting would make some of those things illegal and would really change the possibilities for more workers being able to democratically, without fear and intimidation, have an election at their workplace that is truly democratic. And you know, we think a lot about democratic elections right now, but I, having watched some elections <laughs> at a union, that for a union at a workplace that's not unionized, are those really democratic elections? When people are fired and intimidated and forced to go to mandatory meetings again and again, I would say, no, they are not democratic. And we should fight for the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize
0: and fight for
2: fair elections at our our workplaces.
0: Mary, uh, you know you're in San Francisco now. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts, kind of when it comes to this national perhaps opening, um, or ways in which people can, um, you know, garner that that organizational strength to to protect themselves in the workplace.
5: So I think so. San Francisco was one of the first cities to um, raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, and at the time, uh, it got a lot of pushback from the business community. Uh, A lot of small businesses did not think that they would be able to make it work. Um, A lot of small businesses wanted to make it work. And, you know, in the end it ended up being an okay thing, but even in um, a place as expensive as San Francisco, $15 um, is not enough. I mean, that's less than $35,000 a year. And in San Francisco with rents being two to $3,000 a month, just to have a a room. um, It's um, it doesn't get you very far, but uh, in general, I, mean, I think we just need a livable wage. And raising the minimum wage to $15 um, would be a first step. I don't know what it is in Cleveland, Ohio. But um, to me, it's all about the money. People need money to be able to live and to be um, responsible to be able to pay their bills, take care of their children, um, everything.
0: That's a great point.
1: So, I I mean, just speaking of money, right, because we've got a situation where you've got citizens, you know, taxpayers paying into big business, getting money from the government. Right. So businesses get money from, you know, whatever cities they're in or the state or the county or all in some cases. And the people who who are being affected by this are the people who are paying taxes before you know you you ask the question about like what can our elected officials do sure. I, I would say that one thing that they can do is to say before we give you any money to create your project you, you need to ensure that people are not going to be displaced and you need to ensure that everybody from top to bottom is going to be able to take care of themselves and their families and I, you know i say that over and over again because it's the truth like people don't want to just work just for the sake of working. People need an income to take care of themselves and their families and to give back to their communities and to be able to, you know, donate to their children's school event. Like people aren't just working for the sake of working. And I think that, you know, sometimes we overlook that because, the wealthy are they're so far removed because it's it's like second nature to them they're able to buy their kids school clothes and they're able to to pay their private school tuitions and everybody isn't able to do that yet our cities and our our governments are giving them more money because that's how business works you know business saves their own money, uses everybody else's money to get what they want. And I think a bold move would be to say, before we do this, let's figure out what the benefit of this project is gonna be for all involved, not just the people at the top of the ladder. So yes, Mary, I think you're right. It is about the money, um, but it's it's also about our communities and (laughs) about just you know being able to not feel stressed out when you're trying to provide simple things for your for your family.
0: All right, great um, we are running out of time. I do want to play one more clip from the doc. Uh, I actually was a reporter in Los Angeles when the women's March started um, as Karen brought up kind of organically in response to, President Trump taking office, and and in Los Angeles, it became a half million women large the event. And I remember being there when uh, suddenly Jane Fonda jumped on stage and and you know just rallied the crowd and and spoke of of this time as a, a time to be galvanized and to fight. So uh, you know when I saw Jane Fonda in the film, um, it sparked that memory for me. So let's go ahead and play a clip from uh, Nine to Five.
4: We went around and told us a little bit about who they were and what their experiences were on the job. And then we asked the question, do any of you fantasize about killing your boss? I'm thinking, this is so
6: typical Hollywood, you know? But every single one of them had a fantasy about killing
4: their boss. You know, one of them that was so far out we couldn't put it in the movie was grinding him up in a coffee bean grinder and then making drip coffee out of him. (laughs) I'm just sitting there, just can't believe my ears. It unlocked this idea for the movie. The entire time that we were working on the movie, I could carry in my heart that this was married to a movement. Today is the last day of the shooting of 9 to 5, and I'm very moved because it's been the best, most wonderful experience that I've ever had. And part of what's made it so wonderful is that even though it's a comedy, you will know that everything in that movie is based on things that were told to us by women like you. Every fantasy, and the boss gets barbecued and eaten right out of Cleveland, women who work for National City Bank. And then there was the day that Dolly showed up, saying to me and Lily, I've written a song, y'all, will you listen to it? And she started using her long nails like a washboard to keep time to herself. And she started singing, Work nine to five. And Lily, I could see her hair standing up on her arms. And I thought to myself, the movement has an anthem.
0: Coffee, Violet? Yes,
6: sir.
4: Oh, maybe I can hear it through here?
1: No, they say it too, unmute.
4: I don't get it. Um Thank
3: you Jenny, you need to unmute.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. I apologize. All right, well, we'll start from the top. <laughs> I want to thank all of you ladies for joining us, everyone in the audience for joining us for today's forum. That documentary, 9 to 5, the story of a movement, it, it's moving, it's compelling, and it really does kind of remind, I think, a younger generation of the work that was done that laid the foundation. So you can catch that documentary, um, PBS Passport. And we have been talking with Julia Reichert. She is the Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker behind Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement. We've been speaking with Mary Jung, joining us in San Francisco, the former organizer of 9to5 Cleveland, Karen Nussbaum, founder and director of 9to5 and the National Association of Working Women, and Yanella Sims, Ohio State Director and Vice President of the SEIU Local One. So thank you all for the work that you've done and the work you do now, and thanks so much for joining us, ladies. And today's forum is the George Gunn Memorial Forum on the State of the American Economy, made possible by a generous endowment gift from the George Gunn Foundation, a banker, businessman, and philanthropist. Mr. Gunn is credited with growing Cleveland Trust Bank, now KeyBank, into one of the largest banks in the U.S. and strengthening its ties to business. In 1952, George Gunn established the George Gunn Foundation with the aim of creating an institution that would carry on beyond his lifetime finding creative solutions to social ills since then the foundation has made hundreds of millions of dollars in grants towards the advancement of human welfare we are grateful to the foundation for their long-standing support of the city club so thank you community partners for today's forum include the cleveland international film festival north shore afl cio and the wright state university college of liberal arts All City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to generous support from Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.